Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. So, do you want marketing made simple? Shopify removes the guesswork with built-in tools that help you create, execute, and analyze all your online marketing campaigns. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com income now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com income. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Welcome to Stagecraft, Variety's theater podcast, bringing you backstage and behind the scenes with stars, creators, and industry leaders on Broadway, off-Broadway, and beyond. I'm Gordon Cox. On this episode of Stagecraft, I'm talking to James Imes. He's a writer and director who was recently awarded the 2021 Pulitzer Prize for Drama for Fat Ham, his comic, modern-day retelling of Hamlet, set at a backyard barbecue thrown by a black family in the South. The show premiered in the spring of last year in a digital production from the Wilma Theater in Philadelphia, and now audiences are getting the chance to see it on stage for the first time in a live, in-person co-production from the Public Theater and the National Black Theater. In addition to his writing, including plays like TJ Loves Sally Forever and Kill Move Paradise, and his directing activities, he's also a co-artistic director of the Wilma. Now he's in the virtual studio with me to talk queering Hamlet, decentralizing artistic leadership, and his secret to writing prolifically. Hey, James. Thanks for joining me. Hi. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, first of all, it's been a couple months, but congratulations on the Pulitzer. How does it feel? Thank you. Um, it still feels a bit surreal, um, mm. but um, I don't know. It's it's really lovely. I'm still sort of basking in the in the honor of it, but also just like the, the warm, fuzzy feelings it gives you about your work when you know, your contemporaries sort of say, you like what you're doing. That always feels really yeah. good. That was actually my next question is how an award like this makes you think differently about, or does it make you think differently about your work and yourself as an artist? Yeah, it does in a, in, in a, in a couple of ways. I mean, I think the biggest way is that I feel like I want to take more risk. I want to be more adventurous. It's made me braver. Um, but I also feel like it, it sort of pulls me into a community of people that I have admired for a really long time. So that's amazing <laughs> to sort of look at that list of folks and, of, you know, people I've read and studied and acted in their work over my career, um, then to have the opportunity to sort of be in the same category with them is, is really lovely. So those two things in particular, I carry with me sort of like daily as I'm working and continuing to write. I, I think about those things a lot. Yeah. Do you have a sense yet of 
what kind of doors it is opening for you that uh, might not otherwise have opened? No, I don't think so yet. I think because of when it happened and <laughs> like where, yeah. you know, season planning and things like that go. So, you know, I think most decisions had been made about what things were going to be moving forward by the time the news came out. So that's, you know, that's a, that's a thing that I think remains to be seen a bit for me is like, what, what is the, the outcome or what, what, what does it affect? Um, I imagine it will affect it <laughs> pretty, pretty um, concretely eventually. And I've, I felt like ripples of things where I'm like, Oh, that feels new. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and so let's talk about the, uh, the work that's happening right now, Fat Ham at the public. Um, yeah. First of all, Take us back to when you first wrote the play. What was the inspiration and what prompted it at that particular time in your life? Well, I've, I've always really had a, an affinity for Hamlet as a character. Uh, not necessarily because, you know, most of my training in my career has been as an actor. So it wasn't so much about wanting to be Hamlet. I'm much more of a Horatio. Um, <laughs> have you ever played uh, Hamlet or been in Hamlet? I've, I've been in like a, I did like a, an abbreviated version of Hamlet in college, which is where it started for me. That was when the first mm. time I, I read the play and it stayed with me from then. Um, and were you Horatio in that? No, in that I was Hamlet in that, but you, oh, you were Hamlet. A, okay. <laughs> but I wasn't very good. Um, I, I am not a Hamlet. <laughs> I am Horatio and Benvolio and I'm very reasonable and level-headed and try to get people to do the right thing. Um, so, it often I'm, ends uh, badly for you. Yeah. <laughs> or you, you're the only one that survives. I think that's, yeah, or exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I just had been meditating on the play for a while and I knew that I wanted to sort of work on these three plays. I would examine three different Shakespeare characters through a contemporary lens, through a queer lens and through a lens that would allow me to look at these characters um, as black people, essentially. Um, so Hamlet was first, and then I'm, I'm sort of in the early process of working on an adaptation of Othello, and then I want to do Antony uh, and Cleopatra. Um, mm. But Hamlet has been sort of like buzzing around in my head for a while, and then I started reading it and, and thinking about it a lot and just sat down to start writing. And and one of the first things that I wrote was this lovely scene between uh, my my Hamlet, whose name is Juicy, and my Laertes, whose name is Larry. And it's one of the first things I wrote. And that scene has stayed in every draft. <laughs> it's like mm. the it's the it's the kernel of the play that sort of the rest of the play sort of spirals out from is this quest to be, you know, softer, more tender, more loving, but also more honest and more brave. And also like asking for what you need, <laughs> which are all of these things that as adult, as an adult, I've discovered, Oh, I can do these things. <laughs> Not, yeah. you know, um, so that's, that's kind of how the play started for me. Why do you feel like those, all those things that you were just talking about are, uh, a fit for Hamlet? Why were those things uh, sort of inherent in your version of Hamlet specifically? Well, I just kept thinking about like, you know, if Hamlet were to go better, like let's say if Hamlet wasn't a comedy. <laughs> yeah. What, what yeah, would be your version things... is very explicitly a comedy, right? <laughs> it's like, very it's, much a comedy. A, yeah. I mean, even on the on the Shakespearean level, there's a bit of like, oh, there's a bit of coupling at the end. Like it's it's very much following the, the Shakespearean comedy sort of playbook. Mm -hmm. um, 
I think I, I was asking myself what what would be required to sort of make that shift in the story. And I was like, well, if Juicy told people how he felt truly, or if if Hamlet did, and if uh, Gertrude, who is my Tidra, said, I'm sorry, and also told, <laughs> you know, her son what she needed, um, that would be an easier story to tell. That would be a funnier story. That would be a, a, a less deadly story. And so I started to play with, you know, what happens if these people start, you know, questioning the things that are expected of them. Like, you know, when the ghost shows up, the expectation is that he's going to go through with it. And he goes through with a lot of, you know, attempts at trying to like do the thing that the original ask of, of, of Hamlet mm. and he's not good at it. <laughs> he also discovers that like, he's, he doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to harm people. He doesn't want to attack people, but he also discovers in the course of the play that he's absolutely capable of those things. And so he has mm. to deal with those, um, realities too. I feel like that's the only real tragedy in the play is this moment where he outs Larry, which is brutal. It's, it's a catastrophe in a real way. Um, and so if you think about Hamlet in, in that context, then it is a play about how do you become more vulnerable? How do you become more um, porous, really? You know, I mean, I think there's a lot of different ways of talking about being tender or being vulnerable or being a soft person. Some of that is just being a little porous so that people can get in and like a lot of who you are at your truest can sort of seep out into the world and other people can have access to it. And I think that's what all the characters ultimately sort of find themselves choosing in the end of, of my play. Yeah. Were, as you were writing, did you go in thinking, oh, I'm definitely going to keep this from Hamlet, but you ended up leaving it behind or vice versa, where you thought, oh, I'm definitely not, this isn't going to get in there from Hamlet, but then it, yeah. ended up working out well i knew the you know the cast of characters was going to be much smaller so i mm -hmm. knew i wasn't going to have rosencrantz and and fort and bras i wasn't going to have all of that um yeah. i knew i was going to keep the world kind of tight there were a few speeches that i desperately wanted to sort of you know transconfigurate into my play so like a few of them are still there you know what a piece of work is man um being the most sort of pristine piece of text that is lifted from Shakespeare and put into my play. Um, also just sort of like Hamlet's, you know, inability to sort of land in a way. Um, mm. You know, a lot of people say that he, Hamlet is not an active character, but I, I feel like he's constantly <laughs> thinking and doing things um, not in the traditional heroic sense. And that's why people read him as sort of like stuck. And I think Juicy does a similar set of things where he's like committed to this idea of human resources, which is lovely and wonderful. And I have family members that work in human resources. Um, but it's also a job that's like about keeping other people safe. At its core, it's about care, um, mm. which is different from what the world is asking of him. So I wanted to, to maintain that sort of ambivalence. Um, you know, I knew that I wanted... Polonius to not be a, another man at the table that I wanted a, a, another woman in the in the show. So I made that switch to make the Polonius character a mother instead of a father. And I think that changes how 
and then I let that sort of that um, that matriarch shape control and really really shift how that character from Hamlet interacts with uh, the two children, um, mm. and it's it's different from Polonius. Like um, I don't know her; she's she's tough, but she's also like doting in this way that Polonius isn't. Um, what else would I say? Yeah, I you know the the players become charades. So like I found ways to sort of take a concept from the play and and mm. you know make it make sense at a barbecue and charades was automatically a great way to do that. Right. Um, another thing that I shifted from the original is that a lot of like the Hamlet the Ophelia mad scene stuff is, is yeah. given to, to Hamlet. Um, like that, Hey, Nani Nani and sort of like, you know, flipping out is, is not attributed to this like damsel in distress, but it's attributed to the hero of the play. And then he, he moves through it. And then we see this really tender moment with his mother of her actual mm-hmm. fear of his well being. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's sort of mm-hmm. a, a a tight tidy list of the stuff that sort of changed and stayed. <laughs> yeah. You, you mentioned some of the, the speeches that you wanted to keep, which you kept in varying versions. Um, you do something really interesting in the play with soliloquies and, and direct address and how much those moments are revealing and how much you can have privacy while you are speaking directly to an audience. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about sort of how the soliloqu- soliloquies work for you in this play. What I love about the soliloquies is that they instantly activate the audience. So you're, you're, the the speaker needs you to work through this concept, through this idea. Mm. And I think at their best, they elicit a sort of like churchness when they're performed. Now I think we don't feel that when we do, you know, Hamlet or, or any of the tragedies now, because there's a sort of veil of reverence over how you are supposed to behave in a Shakespeare play. Um, but I think in Shakespeare's time, they were like, no, it's a terrible idea. Don't do that. Don't listen. Like they talked back to these plays. I just believe that, you know, like they threw tomatoes at these plays and they didn't like them. So I'm, I, I know for a fact that they, they absolutely spoke back or they had like, you know, audible reactions. And so I just like, keep that thread you know i also have this real feeling that's kind of foundational to most of the things that i write is that there isn't really a fourth wall you know i just i I think it's a a concept that's useful if you want to do a kind of thing but at the end of the day if a cell phone goes off in the house the act you feel the actors tense it it has a direct effect and so why pretend like what is happening in the dark is obscured and you know uh boring even you know i don't think it's boring i think it's actually really amazing i was in a production of brandon jacobs jenkins play an octoroon in philadelphia mm-hmm. and someone had a a, a, a terrible mer- medical emergency in in the show and everyone was fine but it was a real moment like an ambulance came and that was sort of the moment for me doing this play that is all about sort of like disturbing the relationship between the audience and what's happening on stage. And I just sort of like, was, I, I never put the fourth wall back up in anything I ever wrote. Like I just said, 
yeah, if someone chooses to look at the audience, that needs to be powerful. And I, I think it's even more powerful if the whole time we are, as audience members, are aware of the fact that we are watching and that we, and that we are known, that mm. the characters know they are being watched. And so that, yeah. that puts a different color on what's happening on stage if the idea is that when the character looks into the audience, it's intentional. And what they're about to say is, is powerful because they know we're there. So they know we know everything. <laughs> like there's just something really, I think, delicious about that. Um, mm. And it really does change the moment when someone looks into the audience. It's like, that's right. I'm with you. It's not like, mm. oh, I'm shocked that you see me. It's, yeah, I'm ready to say some things back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And at the the end of this play, you do something big and bold and exciting at the end of this play that, uh, and we can even say, you know, for people who haven't, for listeners who haven't seen it yet, we can say spoiler warning, but I wonder if you could, uh, and maybe they'll want to fast forward ahead for a minute or two, but um, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about why that sequence felt like the way to end this play and what it sort of, why that's the, the final moment for this story that you are telling, uh, your version of Hamlet. Yeah. Endings are hard. <laughs> like <laughs> ending things is, it, uh, are, it, it's an impossible task. In real life, it's hard. Like ending a relationship, it's hard. <laughs> you know, yeah. ending a, a job, that's hard. So ending things are, is really difficult. So I'll start there. Um, in the in the script, the stage direction is is very simply the space cracks open in a celebration of the I think the the queer, the feminine, and the divine. That's it. That's all the script says. Mm. <laughs> and then you get a really brilliant director like Zahim Ali who sees that and goes, oh, that's that's how I, this is how I see those things. This is how I see divine and queer and black and celebration. And he, you know, him with me and the actors all sort of like pull together this idea that the space would literally crack open and something really kind of fabulous sort of like emerges out of that and i think after you know this like terrible moment of like you know the patriarchy choking to death essentially on a rib you know juicy right. doing this horrible thing to this beloved friend of his from his youth i just felt like that's those are the deaths right that this play isn't without death yeah um and then out of death, I want to like continue to reiterate like a, a big part of of life is that something will come out of death. You know, um, when when leaves fall on the ground in the in the fall, that's like death. We're like surrounded by death. We don't think about it that way. Like, oh, the trees are so beautiful, they're so nice, but we're like literally surrounded by things that are are kind of dying. And there's a cyclical nature to like death and life. And, you know, th this ending in, in the iteration that it, it's in is a thing that I wrote in, in the height of the pandemic when I was losing quite a lot of family. Um, and, and when I say a lot, I mean a lot. The, the death in my family was staggering during that time. Mm -hmm. And I was just trying to make some sense of 
why that happens, you know, understanding that it is a thing that we all will, will meet one day, but just, I could not get my head around it. And I just needed to, in some way, find a way to talk about death that was life affirming, that I as the living, as someone who's left behind, what is what is my responsibility to the dead? What is my responsibility to those who have passed on? And one of those things that I, I came out of that thinking and that in, you know interior meditation was to live. <laughs> you know, live fully, live truthfully, live um, boldly. And so that that sort of image of like the, the space cracks open into these things that feel very life-giving to me. You know, my my blackness, my queerness, my relationship to the feminine feels very affirming, life-giving to me. So it just made sense that after all of that, this cage that is this play cracks open and something we can't contain that people will hum as they're walking out of the door that that flows out into the street that that's a thing that leaves that it can't be contained inside of the cage of the play so it goes somewhere else and that ultimately is what i'm always trying to do i'm never completely successful at doing that but i feel like we we created something really beautiful sahim and i and the cast created something really beautiful in that that final moment i'll have more with james right after the break. And now here's more with the Pulitzer Prize winning playwright, James Imes. The very first production of Fat Ham was at the height of lockdown. None of us were in theaters at that point. And so it was a digital streaming production. It was kind of a movie. Um, What... But tell, tell, tell us about that adjustment and what did you learn about the play mm. as you thought about it, you know, thinking about it, playing that story to the screen as opposed to live in a room? Yeah. Um, so I am a part of an artistic cohort at a theater in Philly called the Wilma Theater. Yeah. And uh, for that season, before anything, any of these things happened, we had planned a season. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the plays was Fat Ham and we had to make a decision when everything shut down. Do we, you know, we had one more show in our, in the season that we were in that I was directing that we turned into a radio play. So that was mm-hmm. the first step was like, Oh, we can do this as audio. And then um, the founding artistic director who was still a part of the cohort at the time, Blanca Ziska decided to direct Will Arbery's play heroes of the fourth turning as a film and that's kind of where the idea started and we tested out all of these things like does this work can we do this can we afford this and essentially there are two plays that take place in the backyard of a house so it was perfect you know we we shot um heroes in the poconos just before it got cold and then we shot Fat Ham in Virginia, just as things were warming up. We had to go a little further south in Pennsylvania because it was February. Yeah. And uh, even then, there were a few days where, like, there were some dailies that came in, and I was like, I can see their breath. We have to shoot them again. <laughs> it's like, this is a barbecue. We can't yeah. <laughs> see their breath. So, you know, we learned a lot about um, 
about you know that kind of storytelling and morgan green um who is also a part of the artistic cohort and is a brilliant director directed that production to great success i think the thing that i learned about the play was just how uh tender and and moving it was i think i thought of it as much more of a romp you know rip-roaring comedy but we really teased out the like heart stuff in that play during that process and i think that this, this production of the public is stronger as a result of that because it's got this underpinning of like great emotional warmth mm. you know inside of this play that is rollicking and wild and the turns are really really sharp um um, I think that's the, the the balance of those two things. Um, it's really brought to bear in this production, but we found those like tender moments because that's what film requires is is this this close to the face. Um, you you can't hide. <laughs> so yeah. we learned a lot about that during that process. Did the experience of making that essentially a film did that make you interested in exploring other writing for the screen? It did. Um, mm. And I have been sort of like now dabbling in it in a very, you know, early stages way. I mean, I did a little bit of a TV writer's room for a bit and loved that. I thought it was, mm. um, I enjoy uh, the collaborative process, like just as a practice in life. I teach collaboration. Um, like I literally teach a class called collaborative theater making. Mm. Um just because it's a real value for me and I love it. Like I en enjoy it a lot. So um, writing for TV is, is very exciting for me. And so I've, I've done a bit of that and, you know, I'm yeah. open to anything. I just love writing for the dramatic, you know, in the dramatic form. I just think it's makes so much sense. So I just really love that. So I, I'm interested in every opportunity I can have to do it. Yeah. The fat ham, uh, digital version was streaming for a limited time does that is there any thought of at some point making that available either you know through the wilma or through something like broadway on demand or broadway hd or something like that is that will that live on do you think we're thinking about it we have a couple of like rights issues with it because mm, we're doing it sure. at a time when people were i probably shouldn't even be talking about this uh, <laughs> <laughs> but the, it's the kind of stuff that everyone was dealing with then right yeah it was yeah everybody new, was dealing yeah. with it but um you know, we're thinking about maybe doing like a, you know, a showing of it at the theater mm -hmm. um, and like people can come and see it like like a one night only or a two night only sort of thing. You know, I I loved, you know, what we made, but I also want people to like produce the play in their city and then with the people that they know and with the designers that they love and directors that they love. And, you know, I, I that's that's why I, I love plays in the regionals because you know anybody can have access to this play and and see it so um i don't want it to be too much in the in the wind yeah what was for you was the biggest surprise or maybe the biggest challenge that you weren't expecting in getting the show up live and in person oh gosh the the biggest thing was that um, I had to write out scenes to cover some action that needed to take place, like someone changing into a different costume or right. like those things were really quick in the film version because mm. we could cheat, <laughs> you know, cut. Okay. We're going <laughs> to, you know, we need five minutes for Juicy to get into his new shoes or whatever, 
you know, those things had to happen in real time. So I, I got to write out some some parts of the play that in some cases, parts of the play that I cut back for the film, I got to write those out again and sort of like expand some of the characters a little bit. So, you know, the, the, the uncle Rev, we get a lot more of like Rev as a person and Rev's effect on Tidra in particular in this production than we do in the film, because I wrote that, you know, a little bit more of their relationship into the play or, there was a, a there's a couple of moments where there's like some some light ad living because we needed to you know make some time for um, for people to move about and then also like the 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 dinner chat sound of like being at a barbecue um, that was so much easier in the live because everybody is like hearing it and it's all sort of mixed in with everything else in the film that was really difficult to accomplish and was kind of like choreographed in a way but there was this abandon with it in the live production and so it's so much more fun and like um i don't know it's like unexpected you don't you feel like you don't know what anybody's gonna say even though they know exactly what they're about to say you mentioned earlier that you are part of an artistic cohort at the wilma theater in philadelphia and i feel like that is you kind of share artistic directorship, if I understand this correctly, with two other artists. Um, and I, it feels like part of a trend at theaters around the country to sort of think about decentralizing power structures and kind of spreading out uh, the, the, the leadership of an organization. And I wonder how, how has that worked for you? Do you feel like, t- tell us the benefits of a structure like this and how you found working in that. I mean, I think the major benefit is um, you don't have to think alone. You don't have to dream alone. Um, you know, I think sometimes being an artistic director can be an isolating and alienating role. Um, and in this, I have, you know, this this is the the end of my lead artistic director year. Right. So I'll yeah, I'll you pass each the took a season. Is that right? Yeah. Is that yeah okay. yeah? And so I had a great deal of support during this year. Um, and then the year before that, like, you know, there were things that happened, um, like I was saying with my family and things like that, where I was able to like step away for a pause to like help out with things at home and never, no one ever felt like, oh, the ball has dropped. There's nobody at the helm. There's always somebody at the helm. And the same will be true with Morgan. So it, it really does help with that. Um, you know, dreaming together, having a shared idea of what we want the the future of the theater to be. Um, you know, our tastes are all very distinct and different, you know, so that's also the thing, like the seasons look, even when, you know, each of us are leading an individual season, all of our sort of like sensibilities are in that decision-making. So Morgan season, I'm like, yeah, that looks like us, <laughs> you know, it's got, a few you know a few things that feel very much like oh that that looks like something james would pick and then there's things that feel very much like morgan and things that feel very much like yuri so it's just a a a beautiful sort of mix of people's aesthetics styles interest obsessions um and also just makes the management of the organization less daunting when there's more of you has it brought any particular challenges that uh, maybe you didn't expect going into it that you have had to navigate? Yeah, d- decisions take longer. 
And I, I think that's okay. I actually think that's, um, I mean, it's a challenge because sometimes you want to go, 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 go. You want to like, you know what's next. Um, but it does force us to slow down, to consider, to listen. And I think that's a good thing ultimately. Um, <laughs> you know, we all have very different tastes and points of view. At times that's great. And there are times where it's like, this isn't, this is okay. Uh, we got to work through this, <laughs> you know, right. there are times when it's a little bit more difficult to sort of truly see each other, but we trust each other. And so even when we don't agree on a thing, I trust that everybody is, has the best of intention and is trying to, to do the best for the organization. But those are two real challenges is like, how do you, you know, make sure that your voice is heard without taking up too much space. And then how do you like keep the, the movement of things at a clip that feels urgent or not even urgent, but just feels like um, propulsive mm -hmm. without sort of skirting over somebody's point of view or leaving somebody out of the decision making? We, we work really hard to not do that. I feel like one thing that maybe listeners who are first encountering you and your work with Fat Ham might not know about you is that you are extremely prolific. And I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about, like, like you look at your body of work and the, the you know, I'm scrolling on your website and the, like the list keeps going. You've written a ton of plays. And I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about how you think about being that prolific and if or do you consider yourself a particularly disciplined writer or do you have like a set schedule or how how, how does how does the act of writing and the uh, sort of rigorous act of writing fit into uh you and your life as an artist yeah that list on the on the website is slightly deceptive because some of those plays are very old like <laughs> there's two I, plays but you on still there wrote them i mean <laughs> yes 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 um i you know i I think for a long time, writing was a kind of meditation. Before I started to really get a lot of productions, it really was a space where I got to like work through and metabolize how I was feeling. And those early plays feel like that. They feel very much like, okay, you have a lot of feelings. <laughs> yeah. Um, and now I'm not quite as... You know, I'm not quite as fast as I used to be. I'm not quite as as quick. Um, although I, I, I still remain like somebody that rewrites and, and does writing notes relatively quickly. Mm. It, it just feels nice. You know, I, I the, the act of writing for the stage feels good to me. It is pleasurable for me. Mm. And so like with people who like, you know, play pick up basketball games or like read a book in a day or you know, run, you know, you know, five miles every day, it feels very much in line with that kind of um, pursuit, you know, mm. and I'm constantly writing. I, I'm not someone that's like, oh, I write from, you know, four to six every morning, or I write from like, you know, eight to like midnight. I'm someone who is like perpetually writing on my phone, writing on my computer, writing in a notebook pulling those things together into a form sometimes i'll just hear a line and like put it in the notes and like well one day this line will be necessary um so it's it's and it's a little bit of where I, my space of competition like if i'm being really honest like it, it is where my ambition lies 
is how much story can I can I put into the world? And some of them, rightfully so, have never seen the light of day, and that's okay, you know. Um, and then many of them have have done quite well, so I, I'm feeling good about that. But yeah, it's it's just pure love. I just love the form, you know. You are also you mentioned that your training was a lot in acting, and you are also a director. Have you ever? acted or directed one of your own plays and would you ever um so i was in um a one person show i wrote about james baldwin called the threshing floor so i was i was mm-hmm. in that that's the only time i've acted in something of mine and then very recently um i teach at villanova university we produced a play of mine called white um mm-hmm. and i did a pretty substantial rewrite of that play and then directed a production of it um I loved working with the students because I always loved working with the students. I felt so close to that play. I was like, I shouldn't be directing this. It was way too mm. close to me. Um, so I, I don't think I'm going to do much of that. And I also just like love the collaborative relationship with the director. I love seeing how other people see the play. Mm. Um, but who knows? I mean, yeah. I have a great admiration for, for playwrights who direct their own work a lot. I just, um, I always feel like I'm I'm in the way, even when I'm direct. When I was directing my own play, I was like, I'm in the way. <laughs> mm. Someone should come in here and fix this because I'm in the way. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so Fat Ham is now uh, running at the public. What's next for you after that? Um, I have a show happening at Steppenwolf in the fall. Um, it's called The Most Spectacularly Lamentable Trial of Miss Martha Washington, which is... Um, essentially very loosely based on the real history of Martha uh, freeing the enslaved people on Mount Vernon because she was afraid they were going to kill her. Mm. That's actually what she thought and was written in letters. And I was like, that's wild. And that's a play. So I wrote a play sort of imagining what if, Mm. um, what if she was right? And what does that mean? Um, and that'll be directed by Whitney White. And so that's okay. that's the next thing up. Um, in the fall, you know, I'm teaching, which I love. Yeah. Excited to do that. In the spring, back to the public with Good Bones. Um, Good Bones will also have another production very closely after that in D.C. at the Studio Theater. And then in Philly, the world premiere of another play of mine called Abandon. Um, mm which will be at Theater Exile and directed by Brett Robinson. And what's Good Bones about for people who don't know? Uh, Good Bones is about Aisha, who is a very successful um, sort of urban planning um, thinking person. She she works for cities to make them more uh, livable. She moves back to her hometown, a town not unlike D.C. or Philadelphia or Detroit. And she moves into a home in a rapidly gentrifying um, area, her and her husband, both African-American. And um, they hire a contractor to come to work on their kitchen and remodel this kitchen that they want to be their dream kitchen. And what they discover over the course of the play is that the community is like desperately trying to hang on to who they used to be before the gentrification. And they sort of collide with that. Um, Aisha and her husband. And so it's really a play about um, what is our responsibility to a community that we move into? 
how do we move into a community and become a part of a community and not try to like smother or kill or, um, you know, dissipate the people who have been there, who built it, who stayed. Um, and it's also about the sort of ghost or the, or the bones really of a place that you live. Like you, you never are completely free of the history of everybody that's lived in a place. Um, and I know that, you know, I, I bought a house in Philadelphia in a, in, a, in a very rapidly gentrifying part of town. And, you know, I had to confront like, yeah, they, they, they pop firecrackers all summer. Like that is going to be a thing from 10 o'clock at night till <laughs> close to three. But then like the, the bad thing is to call the police on them, right? I don't do that. The good thing yeah. is to sort of create a culture where the kids know to not do that right underneath my bedroom window because they know me. <laughs> and right. so it, it's really about an imagining of what happens if people decide to become a part of community as opposed mm -hmm. to trying to change or disrupt or destroy a community. Mm -hmm. And when will we see your version of Othello? <laughs> I'm I'm getting close. It's um, I can tell you Great. a bit about my my take on it. It's essentially Iago. I probably shouldn't say this. Somebody might take no. That's fine. Um, it's an Othello character who's a computer scientist who's sort of grappling with racism inside of artificial intelligence. And wow. the Iago character is an AI. Um, cool. And so it starts to mess with his own conception of like who he is and what he believes. And, um, but I'm trying to work with an actual AI um, app to, to write parts of it. So that's, that's the difficult part right now. Yeah. So it's well, very early. <laughs> well, uh, we cannot wait to see that. And also Good Bones and all, everything else you've got coming up. Um, yeah. Thanks so much for joining me, James. It was great to talk to you. That was awesome. Thank you. That was Pulitzer Prize winner James Imes, whose play Fat Ham is now running at the Public Theater through July 17th. If you like what you're hearing on this and other episodes of Stagecraft, I'd really appreciate it if you took the time to rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps us grow our audience of folks who love theater as much as you and I do. Or tell a friend about Stagecraft. Or give us a shout-out on social media. Find past episodes and subscribe on all the pod places, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on the Broadway Podcast Network, which is a great place to find more theater for your ears. Until next episode, find me on Twitter at GCoxVariety. Thanks for listening, and see you at the theater. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot -E 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 org because only together we rise.